And that is what we celebrate today. Well, as you know, during this quarantine time, I have started a special series of messages doing them in the first person. And we have also learned some new words uh, for our vocabulary during this time. Words that we have not used before, things that we talk about like quarantine, sheltering in place, flattening the curve, essential, non-essential. And the one that uh, ties to our message today is social distancing. And as we think about what we've been told about social distancing, that it is helpful during this time of a contagious virus to have social distancing so that we slow the spread and we flatten the curve. And while social distancing may have some benefits when it comes to slowing the coronavirus spread, uh, today I want to talk to you about the dangers of distance. You see, in today's message, we're going to learn about the disciple Peter who distanced himself from Jesus at a critical time in his life and how damaging and detrimental that was. And the fact is, while you and I are not used to social distancing from the people that we come in contact with each day, sadly, too often we as Christians naturally allow distance to come between us and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to start our first-person narrative sermon as Peter. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do want to praise you and offer to you our worship. Everything we do today is for you. Father, I pray that you would receive greater worship than you've received in decades. That although while we are not able to gather together in church like normal, that disruption, Lord, has allowed us to come afresh and anew and take a new approach to how we do church and how we worship you. I'm so glad to know that the church is not just an event and that it's not a building, but that it is the body of Christ and that today we are united in spirit and that we worship united as we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. And so, Father, I pray and ask that you would help me with all of my insecurities and insufficiencies. I lay them before you today, and I ask that you would take your Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, and that you would help me to tell the story of the crucifixion and resurrection through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, my name is Simon Peter. Now, let me tell you a little bit about why I have two names. Simon is my actual birth name, and in my culture, it means something, the names that they give. Well, my name, Simon, means outspoken, to speak out or to point things out with words. But you may know me better as Peter, but Peter is actually my nickname, Jesus gave me that nickname when he first met me, and that nickname, Petros, uh, in the Greek, uh, Cephas, uh, in the Aramaic, means a rock, a stone, a piece of rock. And you know, I didn't quite understand why Jesus gave me this nickname at first, but as I've walked with him and learned from him and grown with him, I have realized that it's emblematic of the two natures that every Christ follower has my old nature is one to speak before I think, to be impetuous and to rely upon myself and to make promises that I can't always follow through on. 
but my new nature in Christ. I'm a chip off the old block. I am rock solid on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the story that I'm about to tell you highlights when I acted in my old nature and not as my new nature. Well, to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm from the little town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a fishing village that I grew up in on the northwest shore of Galilee. My brother Andrew and I are commercial fishermen by trade. We actually own our own boat. We've done pretty well for ourselves. We're in partnership with another set of brothers. You know them as uh, James and John. As a matter of fact, my brother Andrew and I are close. We've been close all of our lives. And he is the first person who introduced me to Jesus. You see, Andrew and I were followers of a man named John the Baptist. John came out of nowhere like a prophet of old, like Elijah or Elisha, thundering forth, proclaiming that we needed to repent and ready ourselves for the coming Messiah. And something about his message resonated in my heart and in my brother's heart. And we answered his call to repentance. We confessed our sin. We believed in the message from God. And we were looking for the Messiah. Well, it just so happened that my brother Andrew was at a gathering where John was preaching on the day that Jesus of Nazareth came to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. Andrew said it was like, unlike any other baptism he had seen. John baptized hundreds, yea, thousands of people in our area. And Andrew and I were there and witnessed many baptisms. But Andrew said when John baptized Jesus, it was unlike any other baptism he had ever seen. He said the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon Christ. And that there was a voice heard from heaven saying... This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, after that baptism, Andrew heard John the Baptist declare when he looked at Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John had never said that about anybody else. As a matter of fact, he repeated it again in the presence of my brother. Andrew, if you know him, is kind of a curious type. And so he decided to follow Jesus, and Jesus invited him to spend the evening with him. Well, in those few short hours, Andrew come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we were looking for, the one that John was prophesying about, the one that Isaiah had prophesied about so long ago. And the very first thing that Andrew did was he came and got me and he took me and introduced me to Jesus the Christ. Well... Jesus called my brother and I to leave our fishing business and to come follow him. That was a little over three years ago, and I have spent nearly every waking minute of my life by his side. Well, that is until just a few days ago. I have to tell you, those were the most amazing years of my life. I had a front row seat. No, better yet... I had a backstage pass. No, even better. I was a member in the cast of the Messiah's performance on earth. I, I saw miraculous things that you could only imagine. 
I, I was there and saw him turn water into wine. I saw him feed over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fishes. I, I saw him heal people who were sick and diseased. I saw him cause the lame to walk and, and to restore sight to the blind. I, I even saw him raise the dead back to life again. I'm telling you, Jesus was the Messiah, live and incarnate, and I had the privilege of being one of his closest disciples. You know, it seemed like Jesus was unstoppable. His power and his popularity just seemed to be increasing more and more. And even though he had some opposition from the established religious leaders, for the past three years, Jesus' movement has been growing and gaining momentum. In fact, just last week when we entered Jerusalem for the Passover festivities, all the people treated him like a king. Without any prompting by us or anyone else, as Jesus began to enter the city, people took palm branches and laid them on the ground before him for his donkey to walk upon. Some people even took their coats and their garments and laid them on the ground for him to walk on. And then spontaneously they began to chant and to say, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. I am telling you, it was the climax to the last three and a half years that we had been following Jesus. But then, all of a sudden, it seemed like things began to change. We had just finished our Passover meal together, and it was one of those events that immediately becomes a memory that you will treasure for the rest of your life. Those few hours that we spent with Jesus that evening in the upper room made us feel like everything was right in the world. Yes, we knew that there was some opposition to Jesus, but they were shut out. The mockers, the critics, the skeptics. It was just us, the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus shared with us some things that night that, that were like fresh water to a thirsty soul. But then, when we stepped out of that warm, well-lit room, the night seemed unusually dark. And it seemed to get darker as we went along. I didn't think much of it at the time. We were following Jesus out for this night walk after we had broken bread and eaten our Passover meal. And we followed Jesus as he led us through the city streets that were still teeming with people as thousands had come to town for this special occasion. He took us out by the gate south of the temple, one of the less used gates that wasn't as traffic, that led us out into the valley of Kidron. And we went into the valley of Kidron and crossed the brook and headed up the Mount of Olives, going toward a place that we had been to oftentimes before, a place that Jesus liked to retreat to when we were in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. It was a place called Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, it was a, 
It was an olive yard. It had olive trees and it had a stone wall around it and it belonged to one of Jesus' acquaintances and he had the, the permission to come and go as he pleased. Well, on our way there that night going through the Valley of Kidron, we walked past some of the great vineyards and as we passed the vineyards, Jesus took that opportunity to give us an object lesson. He stopped that evening and he began to talk about the vine and the branches. And he said that he was the vine and that we are the branches like that great vine that we were near. And he talked about the importance of abiding in him. He, he repeated that over and over again. And I, I'll admit at the time, I, I didn't fully get what he was saying. I, I, I didn't understand how we abide in him I mean we were with him we had been with him for three and a half years but now looking back it all makes perfect sense even though me and the rest of the disciples did not know what was about to happen Jesus in his sovereignty did and he was trying to prepare us and help us and encourage us to abide in him and to stay near to him you know in that night, Jesus actually said that we would not abide in him. He said that we would abandon him. But I've got to tell you, I thought, not me. I, I, I won't do that. I, I even declared that if everyone left Jesus and abandoned him, that I would not leave him, that I would even go with him to the death. And then Jesus said something that really bothered me. He said that I would deny him before the rooster crowed in the morning. Well, I assured myself and him that I would never do that. And Jesus left the subject alone and we went on into the garden. As we went into the garden, Jesus left the other disciples near the entrance of that, of that little gated garden, that walled garden. And he asked me and James and John to go with him and to pray. Jesus seemed to be under such a burden. In, in those few minutes from the time we had left that upper room till we had gotten into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' countenance had changed. There, there was a, a burden that was on him, and, and I got the sense that the weight of that burden was so heavy that it would have crushed any other man. But Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. I could tell that something was weighing on him, and, and he asked us to pray with him. He seemed troubled. He seemed, he seemed as if I'd never seen him before. And he asked us to stay up and pray with him, but I, I have to tell you, we were so tired. Our, our bellies were full. We had just enjoyed a feast. It was now after midnight. It had been a busy, hectic day. And when we closed our eyes to pray, we couldn't help but fall asleep. What happened next seemed like a very bad dream. I remember Jesus trying to wake us up to pray again and asking us to pray with him, but we just couldn't shake the sleep off of it. I don't know if you've ever been there, but somebody's trying to get you to wake up and you're in such a deep sleep, you just can't quite come out of it. And that's, that's where me and James and John were. 
And then as I was drifting back into sleep, between sleep and awake, I, I heard the sound of soldiers marching in the distance, thinking that I was dreaming only to awake and find that we were surrounded, that we were no longer in the Garden of Gethsemane alone. It was no longer our private retreat, but now it had been filled with temple guard, with Roman soldiers, with officers from the high priest. It was surreal. As I was trying to get my bearings and looking about, I, I noticed that Jesus looked as if he had been bleeding, but, but I didn't see any wound, and there had been no contact with him from the soldiers. And, and then my sleepy gaze recognized one of our fellow disciples, Judas. But the odd thing was that he was not with us. He was with the soldiers, and then suddenly, as the adrenaline began to rush through my veins, without thinking, I took my sword and I, I made a swipe at the closest one to me. And it was a, it was a near miss. Instead of delivering a fatal blow, I, I, I glanced and I, I cut his ear off. And to my surprise, Jesus did not yell attack. Jesus did not jump into the fray. Instead, he ordered me. To put my sword down as if I was the one in the wrong. And then he reached out and gently touched the man's ear and healed it back to his head. It was at this moment that my world fell apart. I was rocked to my very core. I, I didn't understand why Jesus wasn't putting up a fight. I mean, he had faced off with these people before. He had stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the scribes, with the priest's officers. They never could have taken him before. But on this night, Jesus didn't fight back. If our powerful leader, our fearless leader, saw that we were outnumbered, and went willingly without a fight, then what hope did the rest of us have? I'm ashamed to say it, but I tucked tail and ran. All of us fled the scene that night. I remember hearing Jesus say, take me and leave them alone, but we were scattering like rats off of a sinking ship. And for the first time in three years, I didn't want to be by Jesus' side. For the first time in three years, I thought it's too dangerous to be near him. I didn't want to abandon him completely. I, I still loved him. I never stopped believing in him, but my fear got the better of me that night. And so instead of wanting to follow him near, I followed him at a distance. I distanced myself for him because for three years, Jesus had challenged the system and appeared to be untouchable. But now that religious syndicate known as the Sanhedrin had somehow pulled all of their political powers together and now they had Jesus in their grip. There was nothing that could be done. And so I followed him and the soldiers and the crowd, but I kept my distance because, you know, it wasn't safe for me to be near him at this time. They led him to the high priest palace, which was somewhat of a Roman design with uh, an open portico and an inner chamber and outer courtyards and then a gateway. And so 
I, I lingered outside until they made their way to that inner chamber and then I slipped in and I stayed in that outer court area with the servants where I, I thought I would be safe. But would you believe that the little girl who had opened the gate to let me in began staring at me while I was near the fire? And she said in front of everybody, Aren't you one of his followers? I got to tell you, I, 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 I was afraid for my life. I didn't know what to do. Looking back, it seems foolish. I mean, it was a little girl. It wasn't a Roman soldier, but I just did the first thing that came to my mind. I, I said, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I tried to move away and get into a different part of the courtyard and to get away from her. But would you believe that pretty soon she had found me again and and this time she had a couple of others with her. And instead of asking me if I was a follower, she just, she just blurted it out. Hey, you're one of his followers. And, and I was feeling the pressure and I thought, if this gets out, I'm right here. They'll drag me in there with Jesus. What will happen to me? And so, so I avowed that I, I don't know him. And I, I, I tried to make my way around to another part of the courtyard. And then... There were more. And they all began to say, yes, yes, you're one of him. And I began to curse and to swear and, and try to convince them that I was not. I called God as my witness and said, I, I don't know this man. And at that very moment, I heard a sound like I'd never heard before. It was a rooster crowing. I'd heard it many times growing up in my life, but this night... All of a sudden, the words that Jesus had spoken just hours before struck my heart like a knife when he says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And in that moment, as my head was down, I felt as if someone's eyes were upon me. And when I looked up, they happened to be taking Jesus out of the high priest's courtroom. And he was staring at me. I broke down. I couldn't handle it. I ran away and I wept. You see, looking back, they, they had planned all of this. The Sanhedrin doesn't assemble in the middle of the night. They, they don't have courts, and, but they were all there when we got there. And I was so overwhelmed and I was so disoriented by it. And I, I was so afraid of what was going to happen that I, I just denied him. Well... They led him from the high priest's palace early that morning to Pilate's court. Because while the Jews could indict him, they could not execute him. And that's what they wanted. And they took him before Pilate and they brought him up on charges, trumped up charges. And, and Pilate tried to, to, to free him knowing that these were not true charges that were waged against him, but they would not be deterred. Pilate, in his desperation, thought, well, maybe if I have this man beaten, then they'll be satisfied. And so from Pilate's court that morning, they took him to the praetorium where the praetor was. That was the one who, who punished the criminals. And they tied him to a post and they stripped him of his garment and they took the cat of nine tails and they began to whip him and beat him with 39 lashes until he was bloody and he was battered and he was bruised. 
They put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on him, and they mocked him, and they spit on him, and they hit him in the face, and then they stripped him down again, and they took him back to Pilate's court. Pilate tried once again to, to get them to let him go, but this religious syndicate, the Sanhedrin, would not hear of it, and they put political pressure on Pilate, and they said, if, if you let this man go, you're committing treason against Caesar. And, and Pilate, having his hands tied, condemned him to be crucified. Uh, the scene was unimaginable. The, the one who was just celebrated as a king a week ago is now being paraded through town, beaten, battered, carrying a cross as a common criminal, making his way through town, taking it up to Golgotha, that infamous place of execution that looked like a skull, a barren rock that protruded up above the city where everybody could see. They stretched Jesus out on that cross that day and they drove nails through his hands and through his feet. They raised that cross up in the air and dropped it into the post hole and there he hanged for six long hours. Jesus gasping for air, trying to breathe, maintaining his life. It was a terrible scene and I'm ashamed to say that I wasn't close enough to see it. I was still hiding in fear. I was a broken man. I, I, I was so remorseful over my denial of him. All I wanted to do was make it right. All I wanted to do was apologize to him. I, I, knew, I knew that he, he, he would forgive me and that he loved me. But I didn't have the chance. They stripped him from me. They took him to the court. They took him to Golgotha. They nailed him to the cross. And now he's dead. They had to have a hasty funeral because the, the, the Sabbath day was coming on and, and we didn't get to go. I didn't even get to go to his funeral. They, they put him in the grave and they rolled the stone over it. And, and, and even if the holiday wouldn't have kept me from going, they posted guards even at his grave. But all I have to tell you that after those three long nights, the three longest days of my life, the, the deepest days of regret because my last thought was I abandoned him when he needed me the most. When I should have been near him, I distanced myself from him. I've got to tell you, every time I heard the rooster crow on those three mornings, the wound was opened again as my guilt and my shame was fresh as the night that I cursed and denied him. But I have to tell you on that third morning, before the sun rose, before that rooster had a chance to mock me once again, one of the ladies came who had been to the tomb, and she announced that he is not there, he is risen. I couldn't believe it. John and I jumped up and we ran to the tomb and John outran me and got there first. But when I got there, I ran straight into the tomb. I looked around. He was not there. His death cloth was that, that linen that he had been wrapped in, that shroud that had covered his dead body. It was laid there. And the napkin was set apart like it had been taken off and laid down and the tomb was empty. And we realized that Jesus had risen again that day. And today, 
He has appeared to us and today we have spent time with him. And today we realize that he is alive forevermore. And I have to tell you that I, from this day forward, will never allow that kind of distance to come between me and my Lord. The good news is that we don't have to. That even though he is not here physically, he sent his Holy Spirit not just to be with us, but to live in us. And we can be closer to him today than ever before. But I want to ask you on this resurrection morning, how about you? Is there distance between you and the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you allowed things into your life that have crowded him out? Listen, I never thought that I would. I even boldly declared that that would never happen to me. But can I tell you part of my problem? May I give you a word of advice? There were a few things that caused my downfall. One was self-confidence. You see, I wasn't trusting in Jesus to get me through. I was trusting in old Simon. I, I was thinking that I was strong enough, that I was close enough. I mean, my name is at the top of every list you find in the Bible listing the disciples. I was his number one right-hand man. I mean, I... I surely could stand, but you know what I found? When my confidence is in myself, I am bound to fail. Another problem that I had was that I prayed too little. You see, that night when Jesus asked us to pray, he wasn't just asking us to pray for himself. He said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He was inviting us to pray for ourselves, to find the strength from God to stay near to him, even in difficult times. And then it was my own fear and self-preservation that caused me to deny him when I was asked. I didn't identify with him. I didn't take the opportunity that I had to be the witness. What a difference that might have made if I would have spoken up and said, yes, I was with him. Yes, he is wrongly accused. I may not have been able to win the court case that was going on inside of the high priest's house, but I might have been able to win the one that was going on in the courtyard. I might have been able to win that little servant girl to faith in Jesus Christ. I might have been able to convince those others that Jesus was innocent and that he was falsely accused and that he was the Christ. And so I want to encourage you, urge you on this day, this Easter Sunday, that you come and you make a commitment that you'll come near to the Lord and that you will determine from this day forward that you'll never allow anything to come between you and him. Well, now, before we end our service, I have a special song that I want you to listen to and watch, and we'll come back for prayer. <laughs>